I'm glad that people keep coming through the door. <laughs> Personally, um, <clears throat> okay, I was going to say I grew up in show business, but that's not true. I, I grew up as a musician, and my mother's a musician. And <clears throat> one of the things we always had a sense of is that you always want to end well, right? You, so you kind of save your best songs for the last. You've probably seen a lot of concerts where... They have the, the rousing ones, or even they, didn't, they wait for the encore, and then they come, but I'm not going to get an encore. <coughs> so I kind of was looking at this one as, as where we were going the whole time. It's the logical end of everything. Um, so I'm pleased that anyone is here at all, <laughs> but especially, especially the faces that I've seen before, and uh, I think you'll get something out of this. There's probably... Uh, I would not ever want to put slavery and women as a, as a phrase. <laughs> um, but there's a reason that they're together. And the reason that I put it together is because, unfortunately, I think the church sort of equated the two in so many ways that it led to the oppression of women. Now, I'm not saying that the church is the only place where oppression of women happened, um, but I am saying I, I think it could have done something to change that. It could have challenged it. It had the basis for it. <coughs> Whereas, why would a culture just naturally change its gender uh, understandings uh, where Chris I think Christianity had a lot better reasons to change, if that makes any sense, but they didn't. And <coughs> similarly, uh, the church didn't really take a stand on slavery. And so I'm going to try to look at this, uh, the connections between the two. I have a whole lot of slides, but we'll see. But here's the part where I think that Paul laid out something that I wish the church would have gone down. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If we just had that verse, the world might have started changing as soon as Paul's letters were canonized. And if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's descendants and heirs according to promise. Now the estimated writing of that is 55 to 57. By the time he writes Galatians in 62, look what's missing. And to put on the new self who is being uh, renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a new world in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man. Do you notice what's missing? But Christ is all in all. That doesn't necessarily signal a change in Paul's behavior, but, uh, or even his theology. He it could have been a contextual matter. He's talking to a different audience. But it bothers me in that if he'd have said it a second time, I think the church would have had a better precedent uh, for paying more attention. One of the things that bothers me, uh, that affects me a lot, uh, I guess today's word would be selective attention. <laughs> I've been talking about different things. <laughs> uh, all of us have selective attention. You're looking at this and not that. Um, we, we can't help but do that. And um, it's natural. Sometimes it's prejudicial in the sense that you, you know we, we look at certain groups of people negatively just because they're in that group. But it's a natural thing to do that, to be selective. 
we have to be for the world to make any sense. The trouble is, what I see is that Paul says some other things that, that put women in a subjective position, whereas he says these things that look like there's a possibility that the church could be a different kind of place for women. And the church just chooses which one. <laughs> Depressingly, they go down the other road. Okay. So, oh, yeah, there we go. So what happened? Despite these passages from Paul and his inclusion in the canon, the church actively encouraged slavery and sexist interpretations of gender. While some resistances occurred over slavery, virtually none did over gender until the 20th century. As um, Ken Wilber pointed out in a book called A Brief History of Everything, which I thought he had a lot of nerve writing, but by gosh, if you read it, you go, it is. I don't know how he does it. But one of the depressing things that I read in there was he said that no religious organization ever on the planet did anything for women or slaves. None of them stood up for them. Now, pockets did. There were people. There were individuals. There were groups. There were, you know, particularly organizations. But the church itself, Buddhists, nobody, the Buddhists actually had a very egalitarian point of view, but over time, it kind of disintegrated. Hinduism actually had a positive role for women, but over time it disintegrated. He says, so it took Enlightenment thinkers to actually make a change for women. And even Enlightenment thinkers weren't even thinking about women. It was Mary Wollstonecraft that said, well, if men are free. <laughs> and she wrote Vindication on the Rights of Women. Well, this is it's like 1750-something or other. So 1,700 years after Christ, nobody has really dealt with slavery or I, there are things that have happened. We'll see that things happened, but nothing really, really changed. All right, so if we look at slavery in the Bible, I had uh, some students do this one time, see if they could create a case against slavery and a case for slavery, put them in two different groups, based on the Bible. The case against slavery, they were lost because the case for slavery is much more clear. In Leviticus, it says, your male and female slaves are to come from the nations around you. From them may you buy slaves. You may even bequeath them to your sons after you receive a possession. You can use them as permanent slaves. So slaves, you couldn't enslave another Jew, but you could certainly enslave anybody else. And actually, you could enslave another Jew if it was a voluntary limited commitment. Indentured slavery, the church never took a stand against indentured slavery or enslaving uh, enemies. Never took a stand against that. Now, recently, like Vatican II, they did, but that's a long time. All right, so Colossians, slaves obey your masters in everything. Ephesians 6, 5, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, just as you would obey Christ. Colossians, masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you have a master in heaven. So there's no active challenge of the idea of slavery. In fact, Paul seems to it just kind of take it as a fact of life. And that uh, he tells slaves how to be Christians, and he tells masters how to be Christians, but he doesn't challenge the institution at all. First Peter goes along with that. In fact, he almost seems to be quoting Paul. Obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Now, what I want you to notice is that there's a pattern here that Christ is here, man is here, slave here. It's the same pattern, Christ is here, man is here, woman is here. Yes? 
the scriptures take the same um, position. So what I wanted you to notice is that these passages that have to do with slavery exactly mirror the things that are said to women that we'll look at in a minute. Uh, slavery is also a metaphor in the Bible. Um, I didn't quote anything, but the Old Testament talks about you were slaves in Egypt who do not be a slave again, that sort of thing, the metaphors that they use through Jeremiah, etc. And then in Romans, uh, if you enslave yourself to something, um, you're slaves of whatever you obey. So whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. Uh, there's also some confusing ways that Paul calls himself a slave of Christ. So um, there's a master-slave relationship between Jesus and, and Paul. And it, when he talks about obedience, sometimes it seems like a master-slave relationship. And you can see it's parallel in these passages. Masters provide your slave with what is right because you have a master in heaven. So he's definitely comparing Jesus to a, a slave master. Not a happy image now by any means. But Paul calls himself a slave of Christ. Doulos is the word he uses, and it's a voluntary slave. It's not one enslaved because he's an enemy or enslaved because he's a foreigner or whatever. Um, he's a voluntary slave. And they used to wear uh, slaves, voluntary slaves wore an earring. You've probably seen that in movies a lot. They wear the little gold earring. And Paul wore a gold earring to mark himself as a slave of Christ. Now, Augustine, you should be getting tired of Augustine by now. I'm getting tired of the way he was negatively used. It's not to say he didn't say anything positive, but in, in terms of the things we've been talking about, women and slaves, and ooh, not a happy guy to go with. <coughs> All right. The, in Christian antiquity, in the Middle Ages, theologians generally followed St. Augustine, even though the town in Florida is called St. Augustine. He called himself Augustine. In holding that although slavery could not be justified under natural law, it was not forbidden by that law. According to Augustine, slavery is, is not something natural. That is, it did not belong to the original state of the human being. It's a consequence of inequity, adversity, and particularity of war. So guess what it's connected to? If you were here last week, you already know. Original sin. As a consequence, the Roman Catholic Church, up until the modern era, came to accept certain types of slavery as a social consequence of, this, of the human condition, connected by some with original sin, but teaching that slaves should be treated humanely and justly. And if somewhere in your brain you're remembering something about the mark of Cain being equated with Africans, that wasn't really thought about until the Mormons. So we're quite a bit off from that idea. Fortunately, not many people in the ancient world made any connections like that. All right. In the age of discovery, the clergy, religious orders, and popes owned slaves. But at that time, Roman Catholic teaching began to turn a little against it unjust forms of slavery, so they believed there were just forms of slavery. Indentured servanthood, and enslaving enemies, enslaving Muslims, no problem. But they prohibited the enslavement of the recently baptized, eliminating, uh, culminating in pronouncements by Pope Paul in 1537. Now, we'll look at that again. 1537 is when the church officially took some sort of a stand, which you can see that's right in the middle of the slave trade, and popes after that are going to dismantle it. So, <coughs> because in the age of discovery more and more Christians owned slaves, then it became more and more prob problematic. So the papal bulls that followed after that, Dom Diversas and Romanus Pontifex, sanctioned slavery and were used to justify the enslavement of natives and appropriation of their lands. 
So it just depended on who was pope, really. All right. But at the same time that more and more people were getting a slave, more and more people were experiencing seeing slaves. So there came about, um, actually what happened was diseases and things were killing off the native population, so more and more slaves were being brought over, and so more and more people began to question the morality of slavery. So here's what the popes tried to do. <laughs> now, I've got to admit, popes probably had more, a whole lot more power at that time than they do now. A, a pope puts out something, and, and it's kind of a wish, isn't it? It's, he doesn't have that much authority. And I'm sure Catholics the, all over the diaspora are not waiting to see what he has to say. Um, despite fears, you remember when Kennedy was being elected president, everybody was afraid of a Catholic president that he'd be under the pope. So I suppose there are still fears out there somewhere, but um, at least at this time, the Pope had the power to excommunicate, and most people did not want to be excommunicated. 1435, um, Pope Eugene IV, I didn't even know there was a Pope Eugene, but my dad would be happy because that was his name. He hated that name, but anyway, he put out a dictum, 1435, condemning the enslavement of peoples in the newly colonized Canary Islands. Pope Paul III also, and he, he said uh, that this is the one I was talking about, 1537, which was a watershed mark in terms of popes and slavery, and slavers as allies of the devil, and declared attempts to justify slavery null and void. So a lot of times people brag that the Catholic Church took a stand in 1537. That's 1,537 years. Late. <laughs> just to use the date that we call. I know Jesus was aboard exactly zero, but I think it was 1,500 years late. He put out another one uh, in a pastorale officium, excommunication for those who attempted to enslave Indians or steal their goods. You can tell, this is 1537. Did it slow things down? Uh, probably not. But I'm sure there were a few good Catholics who stopped because of it. Uh, <coughs> in 1686, slavery is still continuing and the Holy Office is asked whether it's evil or not. It's like everybody forgot about 1537 and they said slaveholders the Holy Office declared were obliged to emancipate e and even compensate blacks unjustly enslaved. So you can't say the church was doing nothing but I don't know if they're doing anything effectively because the, this has to be followed up by Christians doing something about it. Papal condemnation of slavery persisted throughout the 18th and 19th century. Pope Gregory, what is that, 16th? 1839 bill reiterated papal opposition to enslaving Indian blacks or other such people and forbade any ecclesiastic or lay person from presuming to defend as permissible this trade in blacks no matter what pretext or excuse. All right, this is about the same time that Britain, Great Britain was the, uh, one of the first European countries to abolish slavery, 1837. So again, 1837 years too late, and the United States is still a whole war away from getting rid of slavery. 1890, Pope Leo forcefully condemned slavery and sought its elimination throughout South America and Africa. 
Okay, so let me just give a little overview before I move into the rest of this depressing things, uh, things that we have to look at. In the, in the church and in culture in general, this things are made between just and unjust slavery, which began, of course, with Augustine. And whether a particular slave was justly or unjustly kept in that condition could depend on his religious status. So in other words, if it were a Christian, then it would be unjust to keep them more than a, a specific amount of time. But if we're, if we're not a Christian, say an African. Now, we can see the problem with that in that they Christianized the Africans, but still kept them enslaved. The church long accepted the right of a person to sell himself or his children into slavery. I, I was almost with it there for the first sentence, if it were a choice of one person, but his children, which was sometimes fairly common, or sentenced to slavery as a criminal punishment. They supported that. Slavery was long regarded as a, essentially an issue of secular law, and so they pretty much just let secular authorities take care of it. What's really amazing to me that I found out here is that I didn't know that the church also left marriage mostly uh, to the secular authorities. Did you know that? That's very interesting, because now we think the church has been involved in marriage from the very beginning. It was not. And of course, some elements within the church use scripture to defend slavery, and I thought, just for a kick, what the Presbyterians do? I summed it up here with same old arguments, <laughs> almost 2,000 years, an embarrassing moment in Presbyterian history. The Presbyterian church splits into different factions, 1838. The Presbyterian Church in the U.S. put on, actually, I am proud of them for this, they put on a debate, whether slavery was right or not. To me, it's not a debate, but, you know. It's a four-day debate. Is slavery itself sinful? And the relation between a master and slave, a sinful relation. Well, we had two preachers invited, a guy named Blanchard, the noose of chattelism is around the neck of every slave and brings back every fugitive to the most pious master, not as a man, but as an animal, a chattel, a thing. Thus, slaveholding is degrading men to the level of brutes as completely as the nature of the case will admit. He was opposed by Rice, Reverend Nathaniel Rice. The fact then is clearly established if language can establish that God did recognize the relation of master and slave as under the circumstances lawful and did give express permission to the Jews to purchase slaves from the heathen and hold them. Okay, so his argument was based, of course, on the Leviticus passage and passages in Paul where he talks about masters and slaves. Again, selective perception, isn't it? Nobody ever mentions Paul's statement in Christ, there is no slave nor free. It doesn't come up. So, uh, I think I say that here, so yeah. summary. Because early Christians like Paul and Peter did not take a clear stand against slavery and even wrote more to preserve than challenge it, later Christians, hemmed in by the scriptures and the beliefs from leaders like Augustine, found no scriptural basis for condemning the practice. There's the loophole. Getting back to when I asked my students to do an argument against and an argument for, the argument against is always a theoretical argument based just in Christian idealism, right? That we're all, maybe that one verse, and then the whole idea that everyone is equal in Christ, or that Christ is no respecter of persons, or various verses like that. But they're all principles 
Christian principles, but these specific passages seem to undermine all of that. To me, that's problematic in the sense that there's no sense of context. There's no sense of was, why was Paul saying that then? Does it apply now? And I think that question has to be asked. As long as you, you take the scriptures as being, as they say, literal, then, of course, it opens the door for slavery. Resistance could only be made by appeals to natural law and to Christian principles. As a result, the church did little, and what it did was largely ineffective. Wow, I flew through that. Sure. Oh, I still believe if we didn't have an industrial revolution, we'd have never abolished it. I think it was, it, it had to do with a moral argument, but I don't think the moral argument would have won. I think only the cotton gin and things like that, I think, opened the door. Yeah, I agree. I'm very cynical about that. More needed here than in Great Britain, I think. Yes, and they had far less slaves. But they eradicated it in all the British Isles. That's the important part. You, you said that uh, there was more, they, the slave trade got more and more because of diseases. Are you talking about, uh, I mean, the slaves here were getting more diseases? So they had no, the native populations were being wiped out. The native, the yeah. Native Americans? For instance, in Mexico, about 90% of the people of Mexico died. Um, 60, 70, 80%. Some islands, 100% of the population was wiped out. So they had to bring in African slaves. Right. It promoted the market. Plus, uh, a lot of the native cultures, weren't, uh, they wouldn't submit to enslavement simply because, um, and uh, there's been arguments about that, that well, why were Africans easier to enslave? They weren't. It's just they were taken completely out of context. If I'm in my homeland and someone's trying to enslave me, I'm going to undermine that every way I can. And I know where to hide, I know where to go, etc. If you take somebody out of their own country, put them in the south, and, and you know, where are they going to go? It's hundreds of miles to anywhere else where they're going to get any sympathy. That's a very desperate position. And they don't know that. Right? They don't know if I keep traveling far enough north, except by rumor. <laughs> yes. So they don't know for sure. <laughs> okay, there was a comment and a question. Did we get to both? Okay. <laughs> yeah, in some ways I'm a little cynical. Some, I'm very proud, though, uh, that Great Britain did that. Other countries did as well. But um, they eradicated in all of the colonies, which is more significant than eradicating in England. It wasn't a huge problem in England, but it was throughout you know, all of their Jamaica. It, they could have enslaved people in India. They didn't do that. Am I making any sense? Because they outlawed it. So, was it a moral stand? I don't know. I'm cynical about all of that. I think if morality could win, then Paul would have won in the first place, and everyone would have looked right at those p passages and said, let's change the world, but they didn't. All right. Now, notice how similar these passages are to the passages to slaves. Wives, be subject to your husband as is fitting the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. At least there's love here. 
But it reminds me a whole lot of when he said, you know, masters, be kind to your slaves because you have a master in heaven. It, has, it echoes that. Wives, submit to your, yourselves to your own husbands as you do the Lord. First Peter, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over. At least there's a slightly different motivation. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands and everything. So, to me, there's an obvious parallel and a little bit frightening parallel between the Christ master-slave, Christ husband-wife. And <coughs> one of the excuses I've heard a lot is that this is the world they lived in. Yes? That women submit to their husbands. It's not necessarily the world they lived in. We'll look at that. In fact, in many places in the world, I was a little shocked to find this out. <laughs> and in Britain, good old Britain, the Celts, they had uh, group marriage, they had uh, flexible marriages, they had trial marriages, they had get-to-know-each-other-in-bed marriages. <laughs> Europeans all had these different customs of marriage. And it was kind of interesting to find out that they did that. Even the tradition of, uh, there in some traditions, you're only married for 11 months of the year. First I heard about this, I'm like, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> so in May, everybody was free to do whatever, and then you could come back to your wife or whatever. Um, and what I was very surprised to find is that marriage is a, it was invented by and sustained by women, and it wasn't about monogamy. Are you ready for this? It was about in keeping your inheritance. Matrimony means the inherited land from your mother's family. Huh. Doesn't mean marriage, it means the inherited land. To have and to hold is a contract. Yes, I'm giving you the keys to my land because I need someone to help me take care of it. Husband means housekeeper. <laughs> Who's blocked? <laughs> so men were lost unless they got married. They had no access to land. This is before Christianity. All right. Notice that position and responsibility of the husband parallel those to the master. Oh, I gave a verse, for example. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know you have a master in heaven. Okay. Now, that may sound like I'm being cynical, but the church added it up that way. The church eventually comes to say that a man has certain dependents. You want to know who are the list of dependents? Wives, children, slaves, and idiots. Yes. Well, if you had a child that was mentally handicapped, you had to take care of them. And, but the list is kind of equal. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's wives, children, and, and uh, women early on began to see we're not treated any better than children and, and perhaps not better even than slaves. All right, so let's look at some of the happier practices that were before this. Neolithic world was matrilineal. And the reason it was matrilineal is pretty obvious. In the earliest cultures, you don't know who the father is necessarily when you're in a tribal group you can't prove it yes unless there's our witnesses <laughs> but you can certainly prove who the mother is 
no blood tests or anything else. And you see, even in Jesus' family, it's matrilineal. Um, and, and Jesus has the ability to travel anywhere inside of his family and, and his, his aunts and uncles, etc., um, can take care of him. But uh, we'll get to that in a second. So uh, the matrilineal societies, uh, Spanish culture is still matrilineal, yes? You get your mother's name as well as your father's name? You all know this? Yeah. That's why Spanish people have so many names. Well, they'll say, you know, I'm somebody, Gonzalez, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Yeah, it's traced through the mother's line. Um, Judaism is still traced through the mother's line, yes? So some cultures still are matrilineal in that sense. Uh, so in the British Isles, it was present to the 9th century in isolated pockets of Europe through the 12th century. Since women were first to farm the land, logically, they were the first owners of it. Remember, we were hunter-gatherer societies. When they began to settle down, guess who was plowing the land while the men were out hunting rabbit or whatever? There you go. Some even say, just as a side note, that women domesticated the dog to protect children. That's why most dogs still will just instinctively protect children. Have you noticed this? It's a debate. <laughs> if they were taught only to hunt, though, why would they protect children? So, see, there you go. Some tribes still hold that it's life, magic, and women that makes things grow. I think it's still common in our culture to think women have a green thumb more than men. Yes? And it's still kind of traditional to think that women are out gardening and men, when gar men garden, it's kind of like a pleasant surprise. That's just me, but you've probably noticed this. I learned recently about a prisoner in a, in a, a guy in a prison who, uh, he stayed sane by taking care of roses. And I thought, you really can't believe he was ever really a criminal, can you? <laughs> All right, the pagan Celts. His wealth went to his daughters and his granddaughters. Pre-Roman Latium. Latium comes from the goddess Lot. Yes, we still call milk latte in most in many European cultures. That comes that's the mother goddess's name. The Latin race is named after her. And land holding was called Latifundia, founded by the goddess Lot. In Roman times, women could keep land if they dwelt on it three days a year. <laughs> The Romans were very relaxed in their marriage laws, which I was very surprised too. Pre-Islamic Arab wives could divorce her husband by shutting them out for three nights. I also heard there was a uh, there's an Arabic culture where she could turn the tent. So if he stumbles home drunk and he can't find the door to the tent, <laughs> turn the tent, you're divorced. There are still cultures. There's an African culture where the couple tears their house down together. Isn't that interesting? Then they're divorced. Like, that sounds like a good idea, actually. <laughs> Neither one of you have any place to live. And where does the woman go? Because most African cultures are matrilineal. Back to her mother, her mother's house. Yes? Don't you think that that is due to mother's strong need to protect the children, so they want to make sure that they get the land and not... Uh, Some dolt man? Yes. Um, yeah, it's just that over history, the church and other forces and culture gradually take all the property rights away from women. So we get up to the 1800s and women can't even have their own children in a divorce. How did this happen? That would, no one in the ancient world would have ever dreamed of that. 
And I didn't even give all the examples I could have given. There are examples from Native American cultures here where women had power, they had the power of the vote. <coughs> all these things get reversed. Ancient Greek property was temenos, land belonging to the moon, to a woman. The word men in Anglo-Saxon means woman. Have I told you all that before? It means moon and woman. That's why it's menstruation, etc. Yes. It takes, a, it takes a few thousand years. But we're, look, we're talking about in Neolithic times, there were goddesses worshipped, women had authority, they could be priestesses, etc. Then we move into Old Testament times and Jewish culture starts taking that away, but the rest of the cultures leave it intact, like the Babylonians. So it lasts for a long time. Christians had a lot to do with eradicating it. They purposely eradicated a lot of it. They tore down the temples, they... Well, it often killed the priestesses. I mean, sad truth of it. They literally, by force, turned it over. So, I know my students are all interested in that. Well, if women at one time were more powerful than they are, how do we get into this mess? Well, that's easy to answer. How do we get out of it is harder. But at least to know that it doesn't have to be this way. Am I making any sense? I tell my students, they think that race is something we're always going to have, right? There's always going to be problems with race. Say, so first of all, race is an American problem more than it is a world problem. Other places in the world don't see race the way that we do, not as black and white at least, literally black and white. I so said the other thing is we invented race. There was no idea of race having anything to do with skin color until slavery. Before that, race, you've probably heard these if you've read any old books. You were the Spanish race. You were the Irish race. You were the French race. You were the British race. Does that make sense? You were Congolese, you were whatever. You, your identity had nothing to do with your skin color. So if there was a world where we didn't have that as a category, then we could have that again, couldn't we? I think so. <laughs> That's my theory, <laughs> and I'm sticking to it. And Addis, which is a, uh, a part of Greece, Ademos was from Demeter, the godmother, and uh, thus the root of the word democracy is godmother. Interesting. Demos became a general war for the population. Most ancient societies, young men went out to find a bride and obtain her land as is shown in fairy tales. Yes, if you think about fairy tales, the woman is in one place and then the man comes to find her, right? Snow White gets found, Cinderella's one, and he actually would get her castle, her land. If you're watching Downton Abbey, it, there's still some things going on in there and that uh, um, there can be a matrilineal as well as a patrimony, yes? That a woman can inherit it, the property. So matrimony originally meant the inheritance property from the maternal line. Later on, that stayed in things like uh, the dowry, etc., and gradually diminished. The Old Testament has some evidence of a matrilineal culture. We have to think that Abraham is late Neolithic culture, then he's still living in a time of, of matrilineal and the cultures around him. So, what is the thing Genesis says? A man shall do what? Father and mother and cleave to his wife. Why would he do that? To get her property. Oh, 
He didn't inherit his father's property. He inherited hers. Naomi told her, and, and you're probably thinking about Abraham already, but I'll see, you'll see why, how they, Abraham had a problem there. He wanted to keep Isaac with him. So he had to pay off, basically, the family to get a wife for Isaac. Normally, Isaac would have had to move there. Naomi told her daughters-in-law to return to their, whose house? Their mother's house. A marriage agreement removing a woman from her house was against ancient law, so Abraham had to give many gifts to the bride, mother, and brothers to gain Isaac's wife. Also, since it was a matrilineal culture, there was usually a daughter picked to take care of the mother in her old age, which is still a tradition in, in Spanish cultures. They didn't force her to be single, though. In Spanish cultures now, they force her to be single and take care of her mother, which really stinks for that one sister. All right, enabling the men to keep control of the land was the reason for Leverett marriage. I used to wonder about that. Why marry her off to the nearest brother? I always thought, oh, that's just patriarchy, and it is, but it's also so that they can keep that property, right? His children, the children from the first husband would be able to keep the property and everything if they keep it in male hands. So it's it, how we got there, laws like this. that shifted it gradually away from women. All right, church response. This is a quote from one of my sources. She says, the aim of European Christianity was acquisition of property, which meant, and by the way, I would call this churchianity rather than Christianity, but this is what was happening. Of property, which meant overturning pagan systems of matrilineal inheritance. By forcible seizure and warfare, the church managed to acquire fully a third of all the landed property on the continent by the late Middle Ages. Well, look at some of the ways that happens. All right. Despite all of these efforts, in parts of Europe, up to 1,200 women were listed as landowners, and men identified themselves by their mother's clan names. Up through the 10th century, priests married to gain property. I didn't know this one. From about the 5th century on, priests started to marry. And one of the main reasons was they, the church wasn't giving them enough money. If they married they could have her money, yes? Even Muhammad, the reason he had the money to do what he did is because he married a rich woman. Yes, it was matrilineal. Islam, of course, Christianity, all make strides to push it away, but their beginnings are all matrilineal. So, the priest would marry. This happens all the way through the 10th century and nobody seems to care. Officially, there's a policy the priest should be celibate, but uh, fine. So priests, children were inheriting property and everything else. Until a papal decree <laughs> in the 10th century ended this practice, priests had to abandon their wives and sell their children into slavery. Another happy moment in the history of Christianity. Most of the wives ended up going into prostitution because there were so little things for women to do if they were robbed of their property. The church said that the priests could retain the property and then, of course, when those priests died, who got the property? They had no heirs. Nice trick. So they took away the women's property and access to property. The women ended up having desperate lives, falling into whatever they fell into, and the children were sold off in slavery. This said about what? No, did it say? One-third, two-thirds? 
What did this say? A third. Of all of Europe. And of course, later on, we'll know that this is really why Henry VIII did what he did. Yes? Because if he became the head of the English church, what could he do? He took all the lands. He took all the Catholic church lands. And so he gained back about a third of England. It was a wise move on his part. It's just, you know, it took him a while to figure out how to do it. All this stuff about him wanting to get married and everything, that's a sad story compared to what he gained by doing this. Their property, of course, reverted to the church because they had no heirs. By the end of the 19th, so here's some happy endings to all of this, he said sarcastically. By the end of the 19th century, English wives could not administer their own property nor make a will disposing of it without their husband's consent. You've probably seen enough movies about the late 19th century to know how strict things were for English women and American women. 1930s France, women... By the way, I had a quote I wish I'd have brought, but it was something that John Adams' wife told him that they should put something in the Constitution to protect women from men. And he didn't. He's like, eh, we're not doing that. But she said, anybody will be a tyrant if you'll let them. <laughs> I wonder what that meant for him. But that's a different matter. Interesting quote. Another missed opportunity. The United States could have put something about emancipation of women in the Constitution. Or at least said men and women. Something like that. 1930s France. Women could not do any business with a bank. Not even make small deposits without their husband's approval. In divorces, men retained full custody over the children, which has been reversed largely because of the Depression. So many women being abandoned, there wasn't a husband to give them to, and then sympathy went out more to women who were abandoned during the Depression. All right, so how did it happen? <laughs> this is where I'm adding up all the different weeks. A church takes a position toward women that blames them for evil and allies them with the devil. We saw that last week. The church reluctantly and gradually takes over the institution of marriage, which we're going to look at in a second. Church categorizes women, children, and idiots, and slaves in the category of dependents. And this is an already pointed out by many people, even at the time, slaves could at least buy their freedom. Women could not. Of course, Christianity outlawed divorce. So women didn't have many options. Now, of course, rich people could get one, but that's a different matter. Let's go back and look at a parallel thing. Remember, society was matrilineal, but also marriage was a pagan custom. It comes from the Latin, maritari, under the auspices of the goddess Aphrodite Mari. Or April and May, really. The Anglo-Saxon husband is the housekeeper, the husband. And the marriage symbolized the transfer of stewardship of her property to him. In the ancient world, group marriage was common. In medieval times, trial marriage, common law marriage were common. And I thought the most comical one was one night in a bed marriage, just to see if <laughs> And we're cynical about that now, but apparently it was okay for like a thousand years. The church in the Middle Ages had no ecclesiastical definition of a valid marriage, nor of a contract to validate one. Now, you probably recall that the, the whole idea of the church making marriage a sacrament. This hasn't happened yet. I was amazed by this. That it was suggested in maybe the 5th to 7th century B.C. that marriage was a sacrament. 
But their point was that the Christ in the church was a sacrament, not that human marriage was a sacrament. We'll see in a minute why they didn't believe that. I don't know what I said. What did I say? <laughs> the early church tossed around the idea that marriage was a sacrament, one of the seven sacraments, right? Baptism, and I don't know what they all are. My mind went blank as soon as I said baptism. But there's seven. <laughs> and the Lord's Supper is one of them. I can't think of all. But they hadn't even decided that there were seven, and the church did not decide that marriage was a sacrament until the 1500s. We'll see that in a minute. I'll give you that. Okay, so, oh, but what I said was the, the reason they were even discussing it is because they were talking about Christ and the church. So the marriage between Christ and the church was a sacrament, but they weren't sure about between a man and a woman. We'll see in a minute why. I thought this was very interesting. This is the Anglo-Saxon vows. This is pre-Christian. The brid guma, the bride man. Did y'all know that's what it meant? Groom is a misinterpretation of the word guma, which is an old Anglo-Saxon word for man. So the brid guma said, with this ring I thee wed, and this gold and silver I give thee with my body I thee worship, and my worldly chattels I thee honor. So he gives her everything he owns. And in reverse, the brid says, I take thee to my wedded husband to have, to hold, for fair, and that's a property agreement to have and hold, for fairer, for fowler, for better or for worse, richer or poorer, sickness and health, to be bonny and buxom in bed and at board, <laughs> till death us depart. So when the church finally did um, come around to allowing marriages to be a part of the church culture, they actually just took the Anglo-Saxon marriage ceremony and reworded it a bit. there was no submission in it. Did you see that? She was freely giving. He was freely giving. No submission. Ancient traditions asserted that the male spiritual authority was dependent on marriage. Oh, that's interesting. A hieros gamos, a sexual ritual that plays out a marriage between God and goddess, between the ruler and the land and his goddess. So all cities had a goddess temple and the king was allied to that goddess. The mandatory husbandship of priests were not allowed contact with deities unless they had wives. This is all over the world, different cultures. An example would be Shiva Parvati from India. Notice that Shiva and Parvati is designed to be one person there. It's a male and a female, the same person, one God. Interestingly, Shiva, the feminine sound in Sanskrit is E, and we still follow that exactly. How many women's names end with E sound? Candy, Terry, Tammy. Yeah, and we tend to think that, that men's names with an E sound are feminized. Billy, Bobby, Tommy. A lot of boys get angry being called that. I'm Tom, or I'm Thomas. Yes, because we have a sense that E is a girly sound. Except True? Except in the South, where Billy Boy Bob. Billy Boy Bob. <laughs> yes, I, I had good friends in the South. I went to school in the South, and uh, they went by their first and middle name too everywhere. So it was John, Chris, and Ruth, Naomi, and all that. Okay, yeah, they had names like Ruth, Naomi, which is just almost like a Bible story right there. All right, so Shiva Parvati, uh, the interesting thing about that, that if you use the male sound, ah, his name is Shava, it means death. 
So what it's saying is without the center, without the female in the center, he is death. Does that make sense? So in, in a lot of different cultures, even male deities could not be imagined without a female consort, and that's where they got their power. There's still the idea of that throughout the Old Testament, the Shakti power, the, the glory of God. Yes, it's called the Shakti. Uh, that, that God has to appear in glory, and some people even say the Holy Spirit is sort of filling in that role in the, in the Christian understanding. So early Israelites borrowed unmarried men from the priesthood. Aaron had a wife, etc. And to this day, you have, don't you have to be, you don't have to be married to be a, a rabbi anymore, I don't think, but they, they're not let you rest until you get married, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> True? I'm pretty sure Jewish culture doesn't like the idea of an unmarried rabbi. Christians went down another road. <laughs> okay, so Paul said to marry is better than to burn. That's a happy little one there that he said. <coughs> Contextually, he was talking about the second coming is coming up fast, so anyway. Jesus said, if a man come to me and hate not his father, mother, and wife, and children, and brethren, and sisters, yea, his own life over, he cannot be my disciple. So early Christians valued it if you completely left your family and became a priest or a nun. Um, we probably wouldn't value that today in that same way. Jesus' uh, mother and brothers arrived standing outside. They sent someone to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And he says, who are my brother and brothers? He asked, and then he looked at those seated and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Now, I don't understand it this way, but the early church understood that is that Jesus was disavowing his family. I'm looking at these making a point, but we have to look at it kind of historically. I also want to note that there are arguments observing Jesus' positive treatment of women, especially in John and Luke. Paul's respect for women leaders. He speaks of a female apostle in one of his letters. The leadership roles of women in Acts and the epistles. So all arguments have been made that, that the early church had a different attitude toward women, but these are arguments that have only appeared recently. It, so they weren't a part of the debate in the, in the church that we're talking about. selective scripture reading, isn't it? It's over and over. They like look at these, and they take them in the most negative light. Jesus is disavowing his family, so you have to disavow your family in order to be a priest or a monk or a nun. Um, it's crazy by my view, but that's the way they looked at it. And back to our church fathers, even more happy stuff. Origen said, the true Christian has intercourse with his wife only to have offspring. God has allowed us to marry wives because not everyone is capable of the superior condition, which is to be absolutely pure. See the language there? Do not think that just as the belly is made for food and food for the belly, that in the same way the body is made for intercourse. It was made that it should be a temple to the Lord. Adam had a body in paradise, but in paradise he did not know Eve. Remember, these are the people that said, what's that? Here's another one that said the same thing. You don't have to prove it because everybody just starts quoting these people, right? In paradise, Eve was a virgin. There's the argument. And it was only after the coats of skin she began her married life. So therefore, we should be before the fall. Therefore, marriage and sex are bad. They're part of the fall. 
in this view. I don't believe it for a second, but in this view. Now, paradise is your home too. So he's saying, so you have to live on this side, so don't have anything to do with Eve. To show that virginity is natural, a wedlock only follows guilt. Sad. This is, I, every time I hear a minister get up and say that, you know, the church has always honored marriage, I'm like, <laughs> that's pretty funny. I'm not indeed discouraging marriage, but I'm enlarging upon the benefits of virginity. He who is weak, says the apostle, eats herbs. So his argument is it's for the weak. Are you free from a wife? Seek not a wife. He quotes scriptures, I think misquotes. Talks about where Paul says, uh, don't give your wife. It's better to not give your child, your daughter away to marriage. So he uses that as a universal policy again. The one sins if she, if she marries, sins not if she marries, but if she marries not, it is for eternity. The former is a remedy for weakness. Wow, it keeps going. Tatian said marriage is a corruption, a polluted and foul way of life. He wasn't as popular as some of the others. <laughs> Syrian church has ruled that no one could be a Christian but a celibate man. Augustine, good old Augustine again. This is where it all came from, and this is where some of your Catholic friends got trapped because they're trapped inside of Augustine's remarks. It, it is, however, uh, one thing for a married person to have intercourse only for the wish to beget children, which is not sinful. Another thing for desire, carnal pleasure, and cohabitation. So he, cohabitation meant that they didn't even have a, an idea of Christian marriage yet. So you can see here that he equates sex for any other reason but procreation. That's other devil. Yes. Oh, they said, they said that's, they said that's after the fall, and that the Christian is back in paradise, so they should be virginal. Yes, we only populate the world, because one of them made the argument, said if you have children, they'll probably just follow the devil anyway, so you just brought more of the devil into the world. Yeah. Yeah, this whole idea that you're pure if you if you don't have sexual relations. It is. I've got so many more slides here, but I'm going to try to rush through this. Uh, through the Middle Ages and beyond, because early views of the church left marriage mostly to the secular world. Christian marriage was different by degree, not ceremony. Marriages were not usually held in churches. It's changed in 1563. 1563, they declared that a priestly blessing was indispensable for a legal marriage. So 1,500 years too late. When it finally gets involved, it insists on a master-servant relationship, removing the rights and responsibilities women had in previous cultures and common law. Uh, okay, I already mentioned that, so let me move on. Unfortunately, the rule over women implied abu abuse. 1140 uh, uh, decretum said that it's right and he who woman led into wrongdoing should have her under his direction so that he may not fail a second time through female levity. A handbook on the rules of marriage from the 15th century. Scold her softly, bully and terrify her, and if this doesn't work, take up a stick and beat her soundly. Martin Luther said, when she gets saucy, box her in the ear. 1848, Emily Collins wrote, complaining that accepted reason for violent attacks on, that complaining was an accepted reason for beating women. 
American law upheld the sanctity of the home until 1962, a rule saying that even if a husband was actively beating his wife, you couldn't break in for the sanctity of the home. It was reversed by a sensible judge who said the sanctity of the home has already been violated. As soon as he starts beating her, sanctity of the home's over, and we're going in. Just as a side note, a spinster reversed to a woman imprisoned to a spin house because she had no money or male protectors. Sometimes the connection between wives and slaves was literal. Sister of President Madison said, we Southern ladies are complimented with the name of wives, but we're only mistresses of the seraglios, the harems. Southern wife referred herself as chief slave of the harem. Thomas Aquinas said, woman is in subjection according to the law of nature, but a slave is not. Holy crud. <laughs> okay, a couple more quotes and then I'll try to finish up. 19th century Kentucky suffragist. I'm proud of her because I'm from Kentucky. The ownership of the wife established and perpetuated through the Bible teaching is responsible for the domestic pandemonium and carnival of wife murder which reigns throughout Christendom. In the United States alone in the 1897th year of the Christian era, 3,482 wives, many with unborn children in the bodies, have been murdered in cold blood by their husbands. The bypass of ecclesiastical history are fetid with the records of crimes against women and the half has never been told. One last happy quote. This is from someone in the ministries of the United Methodist Church, 1977. Institutional church, either through its blatant sexist theology, which has been based on the subordination of women, or through its silence, blindness, or lack of courage, has allowed itself to be one of the leading actors in continuing tragedy of abuse. All right, now, let me finish up. In the U.S., women obtained the right to vote 20 years after freed male slaves. Doesn't anybody find that a little odd? In both cases, the bulk of the church dragged its feet. Due to reliance on little analyzed history of scripture interpretation, there are other scriptures. Teaching of the church fathers who were clearly biased against women and marriage and jaded toward the idea of slavery, and a general patriarch cultural values based on the need to control women and slaves, and just a flat out desire for property. So let me finish up. Slavery could be easily defended on the basis of selective scriptures. Resistance had to come from a reliance on natural law, enlightenment ideals concerning the individual liberty, and a general interpretation of Christianity as promoting equality. Women, even now, sexist theology is defended using selective scriptures just as slavery was defended the same way. Do we rely on arguments similar to those used to defend slavery or the general principles outlined by Paul? In Christ, there is no slave or free, no male or female. And I'm done. Sorry, I ran over just a little bit. Anybody have any questions or anything before you have to rush off to the next service? Yeah. <laughs> I kind of like this old deal of marrying into land. That would have been handy. <laughs> but we saw also that can lead to problems too. If a woman doesn't have much land, she's going to get passed over. Thank you very much. You're welcome very much. I've enjoyed being here. I'm glad you said that. I got up this morning thinking, well, at least I'll have my Saturdays again. <laughs> but I will miss coming here. I like teaching you. It's, it's been a lot of fun. <laughs>